Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis on Ethics, Part 1 It is often asserted in modern England that the world must return to Christian ethics in order to preserve civilization, or even in order to save the human species from destruction. It is sometimes asserted in reply that Christian ethics have been the greatest obstacle to human progress, and that we must take care never to return to a bondage from which we have at last so fortunately escaped. I will not weary you with a repetition of the common arguments by which either view could be supported. My task is a different one. Though I am myself a Christian, and even a dogmatic Christian untinged with modernist reservations and committed to supernaturalism in its full rigor, I find myself quite unable to take my place beside the upholders of the first view. The whole debate between those who demand and those who deprecate a return to Christian ethics seems to me to involve presuppositions which I cannot allow. The question between the contending parties has been wrongly put. I must begin by distinguishing the senses in which we may speak of ethical systems and of the differences between them. We may, on the one hand, mean by an ethical system a body of ethical injunctions. In this sense, when we speak of stoical ethics, we mean the system which strongly commends suicide under certain conditions and enjoins apathy in the technical sense, the extinction of the emotions. When we speak of Aristotelian ethics, we mean the system which finds in virtuous pride, or magnanimity, the virtue that presupposes and includes all other virtues. When we speak of Christian ethics, we mean the system that commands humility, forgiveness, and, in certain circumstances, martyrdom. The differences from this point of view are differences of content. But we also sometimes speak of ethical systems when we mean systematic analyses and explanations of our moral experience. Thus, the expression Kantian ethics signifies not primarily a body of commands. Kant did not differ remarkably from other men on the content of ethics, but the doctrine of the categorical imperative. From this point of view, Stoical ethics is the system which defines moral behavior by conformity to nature, or the whole, or providence, terms almost interchangeable in Stoical thought. Aristotelian ethics is the system of eudaimonism. Christian ethics, the system which, whether by exalting faith above works, by asserting that love fulfills the law, or by demanding regeneration, makes duty a self-transcending concept and endeavors to escape from the region of mere morality. It would, of course, be naive to suppose that there is no profound connection between an ethical system in the one sense and an ethical system in the other. The philosopher's or theologian's theory of ethics arises out of the practical ethics he already holds and attempts to obey. And again, the theory, once formed, reacts on his judgment of what ought to be done. That is a truth in no danger of being neglected by an age so steeped in historicism as ours. We are, if anything, too deeply imbued with the sense of period 
too eager to trace a common spirit in the ethical practice and ethical theory, in the economics, institutions, art, dress, and language of a society. It must, however, also be insisted that ethical systems in the one sense do not differ in a direct ratio to the difference of ethical systems in another. The number of actions about whose ethical quality a Stoic, an Aristotelian, a Thomist, a Kantian, and a Utilitarian would agree is, after all, very large. The very act of studying diverse ethical theories, as theories, exaggerates the practical differences between them. While we are studying them from that point of view, we naturally, and for that purpose, rightly seize on the marginal case where the theoretical difference goes with a contradiction between the injunctions, because it is the experimentum crucis. But the exaggeration useful in one inquiry must not be carried over into other inquiries. When modern writers urge us to return, or not to return, to Christian ethics, I presume they mean Christian ethics in our first sense, a body of injunctions, not a theory as to the origin, sanctions, or ultimate significance of those injunctions. If they do not mean that, then they should not talk about a return to Christian ethics, but simply a return to Christianity. I will at any rate assume that in this debate, Christian ethics means a body of injunctions. And now, my difficulties begin. A debate about the desirability of adopting Christian ethics seems to proceed upon two presuppositions. One, that Christian ethics is one among several alternative bodies of injunctions, so clearly distinct from one another that the whole future of our species in this planet depends on our choice between them. Two, that we to whom the disputants address their pleadings are for the moment standing outside all these systems in a sort of ethical vacuum, ready to enter whichever of them is most convincingly recommended to us. And it does not appear to me that either presupposition corresponds at all closely or sensitively to the reality. Consider with me for a moment the first presupposition. Did Christian ethics really enter the world as a novelty, a new peculiar set of commands to which a man could be in the strict sense converted? I say converted to the practical ethics. He could, of course, be converted to the Christian faith. He could accept, not only as a novelty, but as a transcendent novelty, a mystery hidden from all eternity, the deity and resurrection of Jesus, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. But these novelties themselves set a rigid limit to the novelty we can assume in the ethical injunctions. The convert accepted forgiveness of sins. But of sins against what law? Some new law promulgated by the Christians? But that is nonsensical. It would be the mockery of a tyrant to forgive a man for doing what had never been forbidden until the very moment at which the forgiveness was announced. The idea at least in its grossest and most popular form, that Christianity brought a new ethical code into the world is a grave error. If it had done so, then we should have to conclude that all who first preached it wholly misunderstood their own message. For all of them, its founder, his precursor, 
his apostles came demanding repentance and offering forgiveness, a demand and an offer both meaningless except on the assumption of a moral law already known and already broken. It is far from my intention to deny that we find in Christian ethics a deepening, an internalization, a few changes of emphasis in the moral code. But only serious ignorance of Jewish and pagan culture would lead anyone to the conclusion that it is a radically new thing. Essentially, Christianity is not the promulgation of a moral discovery. It is addressed only to penitence, only to those who admit their disobedience to the known moral law. It offers forgiveness for having broken, and supernatural help towards keeping that law, and by so doing, reaffirms it. A Christian who understands his own religion laughs when unbelievers expect to trouble him by the assertion that Jesus uttered no command which had not been anticipated by the rabbis. Few, indeed, which cannot be paralleled in classical, ancient Egyptian, Ninevite, Babylonian, or Chinese texts. We have long recognized that truth with rejoicing. Our faith is not pinned on a crank. The second presupposition that of an ethical vacuum in which we stand, deciding what code we will adopt, is not quite so easily dealt with. But I believe it to be, in the long run, equally misleading. Of course, historically or chronologically, a man need not be supposed to stand outside all ethical codes at the moment when you exhort him to adopt Christian ethics. A man who is attending one lecturer or one physician may be advised to exchange him for another but he cannot come to a decision without first reaching a moment of indecision. There must be a point at which he feels himself attached to neither and weighs their rival merits. Adherence to either is inconsistent with choice. In the same way, the demand that we should reassume or refrain from reassuming the Christian code of ethics invites us to enter a state in which we shall be unattached. I am not, of course, denying that some men at some times can be in an ethical vacuum, adhering to no ethical system. But most of those who are in that state are by no means engaged in deciding what system they shall adopt. For such men do not often propose to adopt any. They are more often concerned with getting out of jails or asylums. Our question is not about them. Our question is whether the sort of men who urge us to return, or not to return, to Christian ethics, or the sort of men who listen to such appeals, can enter the ethical vacuum which seems to be involved in the very conception of choosing an ethical code. And the best way of answering this question is, as sometimes happens, by asking another first. Supposing we can enter the vacuum and view all ethical systems from the outside. What sort of motives can we then expect to find for entering any one of them? One thing is immediately clear. We can have no ethical motives for adopting any of these systems. It cannot, while we are in the vacuum, be our duty to emerge from it. 
An act of duty is an act of obedience to the moral law. But by definition, we are standing outside all codes of moral law. A man with no ethical allegiance can have no ethical motive for adopting one. If he had, it would prove that he was not really in the vacuum at all. How then does it come about that men who talk as if we could stand outside all moralities and choose among them as a woman chooses a hat, nevertheless exhort us, and often in passionate tones, to make some one particular choice? They have a ready answer. Almost invariably, they recommend some code of ethics on the ground that it, and it alone, will preserve civilization or the human race. What they seldom tell us is whether the preservation of the human race is itself a duty, or whether they expect us to aim at it on some other ground. Now, if it is a duty, then clearly those who exhort us to it are not themselves really in a moral vacuum, and do not seriously believe that we are in a moral vacuum. At the very least, they accept, and count on our accepting, one moral injunction. Their moral code is, admittedly, singularly poor in content. Its solitary command, compared with the richly articulated codes of Aristotle, Confucius, or Aquinas, suggests that it is a mere residuum. As the arts of certain savages suggest that they are the last vestige of a vanished civilization. But there is a profound difference between having a fanatical and narrow morality and having no morality at all. If they were really in a moral vacuum, whence could they have derived the idea of even a single duty? In order to evade the difficulty, it may be suggested that the preservation of our species is not a moral imperative, but an end prescribed by instinct. To this I reply, firstly, that it is very doubtful whether there is such an instinct. And secondly, that if there were, it would not do the work which those who invoke instinct in this context demand of it. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>